For 50,000 years, shaman have walked the earth. They have existed on every continent within every race. Holy men, medicine men, wise men, sorcerer, brujo, witch, druid, and healer. By many names they are known. Expanding their own ring of awareness, shamans have developed a deep connection to the earth and the world of spirit. Through this connection, shamans know with absolution that all things are alive and must be treated with great reverence. It is because of this reverence that the shaman is able to connect directly with nature and the world of spirit to learn great mysteries and tap into unimaginable power. Much knowledge has been lost, but much survives hidden within the fabric of time. It is through this show that I will share this cultural mix of shamanic knowledge with the hopes that it might illuminate your path on your own personal journey of discovery. This is Shaman's Brew.
Once again to the show. I would first like to once again thank Scott Fitzgerald for the uh, background music to my opening theme of the Shaman's Brew. The song you just heard was uh, Gold Dust Woman, which I think is appropriate for this uh, show, performed by Stevie Nicks. Now I'm happy to announce that I finally got the permission needed to uh, go ahead with this show. I'm going to be talking about the Goldfield Hotel, the haunting, the gold there, and uh, a murder that was committed there that no one knows about, and at least until tonight, and a few other things. And then I'm going to introduce a new segment to the show called Ask a Shaman, which is uh, based on email questions that people send in to me asking about a variety of topics, and I'm going to attempt to answer them on the show. So let's get started with the story that I've been keeping secret for 40 years about the Goldfield Hotel and the hauntings. The story that I'm about to tell you happened in October of 1972 and is 100% true. And I can say that with absolute certainty because it happened to me. It contains elements of adventure involving gold, danger, murder, and ghosts. This is a story that I've kept secret for 40 years in order to protect certain individuals who have now left this world. It is a story that will offer new information about the infamous Goldfield Hotel haunting and present a new theory about the cause and nature of paranormal activity in mining areas such as Goldfield, Nevada. So turn down your lights and as I take you back in time into the heart of a dark haunting inside the Goldfield Hotel. A haunting that made Zack and his team from Ghost Adventures famous. It was a beautiful, warm, and sunny October morning in Las Vegas with just trace of clouds in the brilliant blue Nevada sky. A slight breeze carried the call of a distant crow and enhanced the sense of adventure that had been brewing in me almost all night as I tossed and turned thinking about the task that had been given to me by my employer the previous day. Here I was, only four months out of high school, in one of the most magical cities in the world, with one of the most interesting jobs I would ever have and I was preparing to depart alone on an antique buying trip to a genuine Nevada ghost town, Goldfield, Nevada. I finished loading about a hundred antique firearms into the yellow Volkswagen van, which I would be dropping off at Spanish Trails, the gun and antique store where I worked, located right next door to the showboat hotel and casino on Boulder Highway in Las Vegas. I could hardly believe that I worked in such a cool place. Just being in Las Vegas was still so surreal to me and different from anything I had ever experienced. Four months prior, by sheer coincidence, 
I had just returned home to Yucca Valley from my high school grad night celebration at Disneyland when my brother showed up on his way to Las Vegas and wanted to know if I wanted to spend the summer there. I had no commitments until next spring, so I jumped in the truck and uh, off we went. Little did I know at that time what kind of adventure lay in store for me. My boss was uh, sending me to pick up an antique bed, a chest of drawers, and a solid oak rocking chair, meaning that it would be a quick eight-hour round trip. So I stopped off at a 7-Eleven and loaded up with junk food and something to drink for the trip, and I was on my way. Once I was outside of Vegas and the terrain became pretty desolate, making the drive a little boring, I found myself uh, daydreaming about what my uh, goldfield might look like and about its colorful past. I brought with me a book that I purchased from Spanish Trails that told a lot about Goldfield back in its boomtown days. It was called Who's Who in Goldfield and was published in the 1920s. I figured it might come in handy, plus I thought that I might be able to sell it to a friend of mine named James who happened to own the Goldfield Saloon where I was headed. At that time in my life, I was just getting serious into what is known today as ghost hunting and had already one complete home investigation under my belt. So the prospect of going to a real ghost town that had reports of paranormal activity thrilled the hell out of me and, and kept me wide awake and with great anticipation as I drove. Everything was going great and Till my idiot or warning lights went on the dash in the Volkswagen van, causing me to pull over and off of the road. Still about 30 miles from my destination. I went around uh, to the back of the vehicle and opened up the en engine compartment to find that uh, the belt that turned the generator alternator, um, as well as the cooling fan, had broken and fallen off somewhere on the road. Now since uh, Volkswagen's uh, have air-cooled engines, and since I had no spare parts, I was stranded 30 miles from the nearest phone. Now remember, this uh, was the days before cell phones. I was stranded on a desolate road that had almost no traffic, sitting there racking my brain for possible solutions to my problem. If I tried to drive, it would surely blow the engine. And there was no way I could make it uh, 30 miles walking before nightfall. And I was not about to go wandering around in the desert in the middle of the night. I waited for about an hour and half thinking a highway patrol or another car might come by and give me a ride to Goldfield. But uh, no one showed. I figured if I just stayed put someone might come looking for me eventually. Then I got a rather brilliant idea, if I do say so myself. I had a rope with me to tie down the load of antiques that maybe I could use and make a belt to at least turn the cooling fan. Believe it or not, after about 30 minutes of trial and error, I had a belt of rope with knots in it for friction that actually was staying on the pulley while the engine was running. So I jumped in and slowly built up to speed and continued my journey. 
about two miles outside of Goldfield, <laughs> the rope caught fire and broke, and and I decided uh, two miles, you know, I could coast part of the way, so I I just keep going. When I pulled in front of the Goldfield Saloon, James came out and pointed out the smoke coming out of the engine compartment. Luckily, the engine was not damaged, but I would have to replace the belt before I chanced the long drive back to Vegas. I asked James where the nearest auto parts store was, and he laughed and said, Vegas. He continued saying that at its peak, Goldfield had a population of about 30,000 people, but once the gold became harder to find, the town began to die, and the big fires that they had didn't help much either. He said that we have about 200 people that live in this area, so you won't find much in the way of stores, but you might try the gas station you passed on the way back when he opens up tomorrow. I told him I had to get back tonight, and I didn't have much money for a motel, and it was already getting a bit too cold to sleep in the van. He said uh, not to worry about sleeping arrangements. He had a spare bed in, in the back of the saloon that I could use. I thought, oh, thrilling. When I walked in the saloon to call my boss and, and fill him in on what was going on, the first thing I saw was a huge back bar with a old antique bar from the, right from the Old West sitting in front of it. The second thing I saw was the saloon's only heating source, a very large potbelly stove with the door open and an eight-foot railroad tie sticking out of it, supported by a bar stool at the opposite end. Seems, uh, seems that James did not have a big enough saw to cut it, so he slid it in a little by little as it burned up. Seemed uh, very bizarre, yet efficient to me. I asked James if he knew of any ghostly reports around the town, and he quickly replied, I don't believe in that sort of thing. Then he showed me where I could stay and, and left the room. About 9 o'clock that night, James brought me some pork and beans and chicken, and after I scarfed that down, I got bored and decided to go sit in the saloon for a while. After all, I was only 18. I've never even been in a bar. It, uh was pretty quiet for Saturday night with only three people in the bar, but what else would uh, one expect for a ghost town? About that time, I decided to go try to get some uh, shut-eye. And then walks in a, uh, a really old and scroungy-looking character with a long white beard, ragged Levi suspenders, and a hat that had definitely seen its better days. After James greeted him and then walked over to where I was sitting and suggested that I should uh, introduce myself to the old man whose name was Jesse. He said that Jesse had actually worked as a miner in the Goldfield uh, mines around 1904 and if anyone knew about ghostly activity, it would be him. I walked over to the bar and sat down beside Jesse and introduced myself and mentioned that James said he might be the person to talk to about uh, local ghost stories. The old man looked me straight in the eye for the longest time and finally said, What's your name, Sonny? And why do you want to know about such things? I told him my name was Mark and that it was sort of a hobby. 
He looked back again for a long time and finally said, Tell you what, Mark, you buy me a drink, and I will tell you a story about a ghost or two and something else that I never told anyone. Now, I was only 18 at the time, and I could not legally buy alcohol, so I, I told James what his proposition was, and James began to laugh and, and said the sheriff of this uh, town is his best customer. He's sitting right over there, and he passed me a bottle of Jim Bean. Jesse and I sat down at a table uh, away from earshot of the bar, and he asked where my glass was. I told him that I didn't drink, I was only 18, which seemed to please him because he said, that just means more for me. For the next two hours, this old miner revealed a story to me that had me sitting at the edge of my seat. He started off by saying, it was back in Ot 4 that I first came to Goldfield looking for my own fortune. I was about your age at the time, and most defiantly a greenhorn. As he spoke, I quickly did the math in my head and figured that if he was 18 in 1904, and this was 1972, this old man was 86 years old. He continued saying, Those were wild times in Goldfield, and the town was having growing pains. I lived in a mining camp, and working the mines for only about $5 a day, and then going a little prospecting on my own outside the town when, when I wasn't working. He said that um, there were huge gold deposits being pulled out of the mines at that time. Lots of picture rocks, which were quartz with veins of gold running through them that bring as much as $20 a pound. He said that uh, was about the time when a lot of miners saw a big opportunity to make some money, and they started filling their pockets with high-grade ore and taking it home after their ship was over, basically stealing it from the company they worked for. He said, these people were called high-graders. A miner back then was making 4 to $5 a day in, in wages and but those who were high-grading could make as much as $50 a day if they didn't get caught. I mustered up enough nerve to ask Jesse if he had been a high-grader, and he looked at me with the meanest look I'd ever seen, and I thought he was going to hit me. He finally said, No. I might have been a greenhorn, but I knew the difference between right and wrong. I knew plenty of them who did high grade, but I never did it myself. There was one man in particular, he continued, that was so greedy and dishonest that he managed to take as much as 50 pounds a day of the high grade ore and hid it somewhere in the hills outside the town. And he did this for over a year. Jesse told me that night it was 1906, and he figured that by that time, uh, this high grader had a fortune in gold. And he was afraid he might disappear any day, so 
He tried to follow this particular high grader when he got off work to see where he was hiding his stash of high grade ore so that he could go to the boss and expose the man as a thief and then point out the hiding place. I asked how much gold he thought this guy had and he said uh, based on just what he saw him taking, probably better than 300 ounces of refined gold. Now again I did my, the math in my head. Gold was about $32 an ounce in 1972. So that meant that he had about $10,000 worth of gold if it was still out there. Which led to my next question, which was, did he ever recover the gold? Jesse said, careful son, I see gold fever in your eyes. You're, you're getting ahead of the story. I followed the man, trying to shadow him out of town one night, but he must have spotted me because near the spot where the Goldfield Hotel now stands, the high-grader doubled back on, on me and jumped me. He damn near got the better of me until I hit him in the head with a broken board. After that, he never got up again. I said, you mean you killed him? He said, yep, but it was in self-defense. Did they arrest you, I asked? Nope. Jesse looked down at the floor and said, I was young and stupid and afraid that I might get charged with murder. So I took him to an old mine shaft that had been covered up when the mine went dry. A shaft where they had built over a place called the Nevada Club. I looked at him um, somewhat puzzled when he continued saying, The Nevada Club burned down in a big fire in 1905, which gave me access to the covered mine shaft that I knew about. In 1907, the Goldfield Hotel was built right on the very spot where the Nevada Club stood, concealing the mine shaft again forever. I regretted the incidents to that very day and spent the rest of my life working in the area and looking for the hidden fortune in gold, which I never found. And now I'm getting a little bit too old to be going out in the hills and desert anymore looking. Now that got my goldfield uh, brewing again, thinking about ten grand in gold just sitting out there not far away. It really gets my fever going now in 2012 because at today's prices it's over half a million dollars in gold. Getting back to the story, I said that's an amazing story, but what about the ghosts? He stared off in the direction of the goldfield hotel and said... His spirit's still there, trying to get out. I can feel it when I walk by. I can feel his hands reaching for me. I always have since the day the hotel was built. I went in one time, and one time only, trying to make peace with him. I went to the lower section, right over there where the shaft was, where I hid the body. And I tried to tell him I was sorry, but never had the chance. From out of nowhere, something flew through the air and hit me in the head, knocking me to the ground. 
I was the only one down there at the time, and it scared me so bad that I scrambled to my feet and ran all the way outside, and never to this day have I stepped foot inside the Goldfield Hotel again. Now my fever was shifting from gold fever to ghost fever, as I just knew I had to get inside the Goldfield Hotel, which was now locked up as the last guest had checked out of the hotel sometime back in the 1940s. Jesse then asked me to never repeat that story to anyone, while well, he was alive anyway. And never, never, he repeated, go into the lower section of the Goldfield Hotel. Jesse then thanked me for the company and bid me farewell as he got up and walked out the door. I ran outside in the cold, chilly air to ask him one last question. What direction, out of town, was the high grader heading before he jumped him? Jesse smiled and, and shook his head, raised his arm, and pointed in the direction past the Goldfield Hotel, not speaking a word. He turned and left, walking into the night, and I watched until the darkness engulfed him. The next day, James and I went to the gas station, the only gas station in town, looking for a belt for the VW van. After going through his entire stock, he announced that I ain't got that one. He said that uh, we don't get many foreign jobs in town. If you were driving a Ford or Chevy, I could fix it up for you. But uh, you're going to have to wait another day, and I can get it out of Vegas. But it's going to cost you a hundred bucks. I said, what? I can get this belt for ten bucks in Vegas. He said, yep, so can I. But I have to drive to Las Vegas and then back to get it to you, and it's going to cost you a hundred bucks. I said, fine, do it. Wondering where I was going to get the money since I only had twenty dollars on me. Then I remembered the book I, I brought and uh, started working on James, who had already told me that I was not leaving town with that book. He wanted to trade me something for it, as that was his way of doing things. Later that day, I got him to agree to work a trade out with the gas station owner for the balance that I owed uh, for the book. I also wanted him to do one more thing for me, and that was to get me into the Goldfield Hotel that night. After all, since... I had another night to stay. I figured, why not do a little ghost hunting? He said, okay, but I was going to owe him a case of ammunition the next time he was in Vegas. He said that the caretaker of the Goldfield Hotel was a friend of his, but in order to get me inside, he would have to get him drunk, and then I'd have to be quiet. So it was about 10 p.m. that night that I rode over to the hotel with James and and he said uh, to stay in the truck, and he flashed me with a flashlight. Now, all I had with me <clears throat> was my own flashlight and sense of adventure. I had no cameras or recorders of any kind, but I was not going to let that stop me. After about an hour of waiting in the uh, truck outside, I, I saw the signal from James and quietly walked up to the door and James came out and handed me the keys to the door and said to be very quiet, that he would keep his friend occupied. 
Let me tell you, it was pretty creepy being alone in that hotel. There was no power in the hotel in those days, but most of the original furnishings were still there, and I felt like I had walked into the past. It was easy to get lost, and it took me quite a while to find the spot where Jesse told me to never, never go. From that moment that I walked into that area, I had the feeling of being watched, which still to this day makes my hair stand on end to speak of it. I kept hearing things move and seeing flashes of light in the corner of my eyes, but I attributed that uh, primarily to imagination. But then I saw it standing only six feet away from me. It was a full moon. It, the light was filtering in from a window somewhere, lighting the room with an eerie, silvery glow. And standing right in front of the doorway, blocking my escape, was a very clear black silhouette of a man with a hat about six feet tall. I froze, not able to move, not knowing what to do. Should I run at this apparition and try to get by him? I called out to James, who was at the opposite side of the hotel, and there was no reply. I yelled louder, still nothing. So I spoke to the shadow, asking if he had died there, and almost peed my pants when he took a step forward toward me. I then remembered the flashlight and shined it directly at the head of this apparition, and the light just seemed to be absorbed by, uh, by it neither reflecting nor penetrating through. That really freaked me out, and I yelled as loud as I could again for James and ran full speed at the figure. I closed my eyes just before I went through. I could feel the fine texture that clung to me much like the way that a spider web clings to your face, but this was my whole body, and it, it had an electrical discharging snap when I passed through it like static electricity. I ran as fast as I could, not looking back, trying to find my way out and stumbling on falling over junk in the hotel. When I made it outside, I stopped to see if anything was following. It was not, so I ran around the other side of the hotel where the truck was parked, only to find the truck gone. I yelled, oh, hell no, and turned around and started running back to the saloon a few blocks away. When I got there, James was inside feeding the fire. He said, what are you doing back already? I figured you'd want to spend the night there. I just gave him a dirty look and called him a few words and can't say on air right now and threw him the keys. Now, from what I remember and what I saw on the Ghost Adventure pilot filmed at the Goldfield Hotel, the place where Zack and his team caught the footage of the brick levitating and flying through the air, was exactly the same spot that I had been cornered by this black shadow figure. This is also the exact spot where Jesse disposed of the dead man's body back in 1906. As a seasoned paranormal researcher, both in and out of the lab, I can tell you that for an entity to manifest in a semi-physical form and express psychokinetic manifestation in the movement of that brick, it takes an enormous amount of energy from a localized source. In other words, there has to be some kind of energy source in the area feeding the entity to create those kind of manifestations. 
my research in paramagnetic resonance in uh, various hot spots and sacred sites has shown that uh, when the geologic uh, substrata has sufficient quartz laced with gold or silver, it will act as a capacitor storing electrical energy and triggering bursts of paramagnetic alignment, which is a sympathetic grouping of outer shell electrons all spinning the same direction. I believe that this type of substrata is capable of fueling paranormal phenomenon and spiritual activity. These are the conditions found on the very spot at the Goldfield Hotel, and uh, as well as many other mining areas around the world. This could explain the many strange happenings around such areas and other places of power held sacred by indigenous people around the world. I have recently taken my research into the field at various locations like this and will keep my listeners updated as my research pushes forward. Oh, and in case you're wondering, I am returning to Goldfield for future experiments, and you might even uh, find me poking around somewhere out in the surrounding desert with my paramagnetic resonance meter that I invented, which is an excellent long-range ore detector. I just hate to think of all that high-grade material lost in the desert forever, out there, somewhere. And now I'd like to introduce you to a new segment I am incorporating into the Shaman's Brew. From time to time, I get uh, listeners' emails asking questions on topics anywhere from the paranormal to witchcraft, uh, shamanism. Uh, they want to know how to communicate with their spirit guides, you know, a whole assortment of uh, topics. So I've decided to add a segment to the show where you, the listener, can... Uh, email me and um, ask your question, and then I will select the questions, uh, a few questions every week, and answer them online. For those who wish to ask a question, uh, you can contact me by writing to marcus at theshamansbrew.com. Feel free to send your questions in, and if I can answer them, I certainly will, and I'll try to put them on the show. In this week's show, I'm going to answer two emails that were sent to me by listeners. The first one from Rebecca in Florida, asking about the ghost box. She writes, Can you tell me more about the ghost box? Does this really work, or is it a bunch of fooey? I think, Rebecca, the best way to answer that question is for me to give you my theory on how the ghost box works, and you know, give you a short dissertation of the history of the ghost box, and maybe that will help answer your question. The ghost box is a device used by many paranormal researchers with the intention of opening up communication channels with the dead or other extra-dimensional entities. Exactly how it does this is not fully understood at this time, but if one had a workable theory it would grant greater control and therefore success to those who try to contact spirits, deities, or other elemental entities on the other side, be it uh, with scientific devices or magical rituals. For those who practice any form of magic, it would be of incredible value, helping us to control and supercharge our work with elementals, summoning or banishing, as well as divination. So, how does this work, and how might 
you incorporate it into your own research or practice. There are some theories on the topic, including my own, that I have pioneered through my research both in and out of the lab. My research and theories are the product of both my scientific knowledge of hyperdimensional physics and my Toltec shamanic training with Dr. Carlos Castaneda. But before I get into the how and how-tos of my findings, perhaps I should introduce you to the ghost box to give you a little background and perspective on the topic. Inspired uh, by an article on EVPs and spirit communication in the October 1995 edition of Popular Electronics, Frank Sumption became fascinated with the concept of communication with the spirit world through electronic devices. He began experimenting with this phenomenon in 2002 from his uh, Colorado home, based on ideas given to him telepathically by spirit. He created a device that would set the paranormal field on fire, which came, which, uh, came to be known as Frank's Box. Frank's box is uh, also known as the ghost box. Uh, it basically is a radio receiver with a random voltage control tuner that allows a continuous scanning of radio frequencies of the AM and more recently FM bands. The amplified radio signals coming out of the speakers generate an acoustic field of white noise with random sound bites from radio signals detected by the device. The result is an audio-rich field which is ideal for EVP manip uh, manifestations. In theory, a spirit or other extra-dimensional entity will use this audio field either during the amplification process within the circuitry of the device or just as the sound modulations leave the speakers, or both, uh, to form words. The exact energetic mechanics of the process has yet to be confirmed by researchers. What is important to understand, Rebecca, is that these auditory signals have multiple layers to each of them, capable of carrying words or entire conversations. It takes a bit of uh, practice to be able to listen to the auditory stream coming through the device and separate them from the background sounds, but with little practice, most everyone will be able to do this to some degree. Now, some individuals seem to have uh, the ability to do this naturally. A good friend of mine, Carly Rose Singer, is one such individual. She is not only a close friend and colleague of mine, she is also one of the top physical mediums of modern times. Her keen hearing and physical mediumship ability allows her to separate the track tones like no one other. But there is far more to her success rate with this device than a, a keen sense of hearing. Carly Rowe's physical mediumship abilities makes her the top independent direct voice medium in the world today. The difference between the ghost box 
you know, or Frank's box, an independent direct voice communication, is that the ghost box is a true ITC device, which stands for instrumental transcommunication, meaning communication between dimensional realities using equipment. Whereas independent direct voice communication is a standalone technique, where spirits or entities use the energy field of an individual, usually, usually a uh, physical medium like Carly Rose, to create spirit vocal cords that manifest speech that seemingly come out of thin air. Now that you have a basic understanding of what the ghost box and direct voice communication is, let's take a look at some of my research and theories about how this device and physical mediums pulls communication energy through the veil. I think it might be easier to understand how all this works by first examining the phenomenon of physical mediumship. There is a buffering zone, which is also called the veil that separates our physical world from the world of spirits. It is essentially an energetically turbulent field made of energy from the physical plane and energy from the spirit world that is constantly in motion and colliding like waves on the ocean. These collisions create a pass-me-not barrier keeping most energy of our physical world from spilling over into the world of spirit and vice versa. A physical medium like uh, Carly Rose has a very different personal energy configuration than most people as a result of uh, the positioning of the energetic uh, center of awareness called the assemblage point. All people have an assemblage point, and it is a topic you will be hearing more about in, in future um, shows that I do on the, the Shaman's Brew. But for now, uh, let's just say it is the, the key to your overall health, perception, and your ability to focus and channel human intention. The position of a physical medium's assemblage point strongly affects the energetic environment around them, the actual air you know, around the person within several feet, uh, creating a disturbance. And often a vortex opens up like little tornadoes uh, in, the, in the veil and creating a vortex channel in the dimensional buffering zone between the physical world and the world of spirit. These vortex openings in the veil allow energy to flow freely and sets up the con uh, conditions for a uh, spirit on the other side to send their own energy or communication through to our world. It is truly amazing and sometimes unnerving to be around someone like Carly Rose because voices will materialize right out of thin air as though the spirit was standing next to you and these are not just random words. They are sometimes entire conversations lasting for several minutes. In the case of the ghost box, I have found that similar energy vortexes on a much smaller scale are opening up for brief moments as a device operates. And the secret to how this happen, happens lies in the electronic circuitry of the device. When the ghost box scans rapidly through the radio frequencies. 
It is the result of capacitors charging and discharging very rapidly. A capacitor is like a, a small battery that stores a charge and then fires it off completely all at once like a little bolt of lightning. I believe that these discharges create just enough of a disturbance in the veil to allow energy to come through. I built an entire device around this premise called the Trans dimensional transceiver, which has been extremely successful in communication with the spirit world, but I will save that uh, topic for another show entirely, and I have done some shows in the past on the Shaman's Brew about it, if you want to look in the archives. So, Rebecca, in, in summary, we see that communication with spirits, elementals, deity, uh, or any other entity on the other side of our physical world is accomplished by opening up vortexes in the veil or buffering zone, allowing communication energy or intent to flow. It can be done on a small scale with certain types of electronic devices like the ghost box, or it can be done on a much larger scale through the manipulation of the assemblage point uh, positioning of our energy fields as seen in the case of physical mediums like Carly Rose. However, can you or an ordinary person who is not a physical medium learn to manipulate and move their own assemblage point? And if so, what does it mean from a magical perspective? The answer is yes. Most, most people can learn to manipulate their own assemblage point. And once they accomplish uh, that, they will greatly magnify their abilities to communicate with deity in ritual or in paranormal research. Before you get too excited, though, I should tell you, Rebecca, that it does require a lot of work and practice to, to successfully move the assemblage point. I will be offering lessons to accomplish this based on my Toltec shamanic training in upcoming shows, uh, right here on the Shaman's Brew. So be sure not to miss uh, future shows. And if you know anyone interested in learning how to supercharge their their magical practices or paranormal research, or if they just want to reach the loved one lost, be sure to have them sign up for my newsletter on theshamansbrew.com. I hope, uh, Rebecca, that uh, that answers your, your questions on uh, the ghost box it's not a lot of hooey or uh, it it is sometimes difficult to work and it works better for some people than others uh, another close friend of mine rosemary ellen guiley uh, has had great success with it and she's written articles on it uh, some of the best articles i've ever seen on the ghost box if you'd like to check that out you can go to her website www.visionaryliving.com and you will find the articles and a whole bunch of other cool information. And here's another email from Mephostos. And I believe he is somewhere in the Mediterranean, either Greece or Italy, I would guess. Mephostos writes, I recently found the Shaman's Brew, and I was wondering if you could possibly send a message to yourself in the past through energy work of some kind, if you put enough intent out there 
as a way to act as a magnet for your message to be received while sending a message from the future date to the past date. Just the intent from both times seems like it may logically help. If you could figure out how to set up an experiment that way, it would be pretty cool. Anyway, keep up the good work and I'll try to catch up through the archives. Well, Mephistos, it indeed would be cool, and actually it is possible. For the listeners who do not fully understand what Mephistos is asking, he wants to know if in your present time, if you can send a message back to your past self, somewhere in the past, be it a day or ten years, and relay information so that you can act in the past to prevent a future event. The reason this is a possibility can be found in research being done by modern theoretical physicists concerning the theories of uh, hyperdimensional space and time. It is also something that Toltec shaman have known and practiced for centuries. If you follow some of today's uh, scientific news, uh, with the Large Hadron Collider, you'll see a lot of uh, experiments and a lot of findings that are pointing in this direction. The reason you have not heard about it as far as the Toltec shamans are concerned is because it is information that has been closely guarded and handed down teacher to student over the centuries. It is not something that's been made public as of yet. The Toltec shaman of my lineage pictured time as a sphere that's ever-expanding. It's expanding actually at the speed that we perceive time to be passing. Now, if you picture yourself on the surface of this sphere, you will be riding the surface of this chronosphere, as we call it, as it expands. If you do not move and you turn in a 360-degree circle, you'll see an infinite number of paths that you can take, paths or timelines as they are also known. We take just one of those paths at a time. And as you step out on a path, that is the path that you follow for your lifetime. However, there are an infinite number of timelines or paths that you could take. Now, if you wanted to go back on your timeline, you would have to go into the sphere rather than, you know, traveling around it as we are, you know, accustomed to doing. Turning around and focusing inwards, we can actually travel back through our own timeline. The study of time and the possibility of time travel has been something that's fascinated me since I was a kid. It is one of my strongest research passions. What Ms. Fostos is asking is, can you go back on your own timeline and tell yourself, hey, don't do that. It's going to result in something tragic. The answer is no, you cannot do that. But you can get a message back to your own timeline, but not directly. The problem is you run into what they, um, they call a paradox, where if you're in the future and you know something's going to happen and you go back in time to your, your past 
point before that actually happened and you say, hey, don't do that, then you won't do that. But the event that caused you to go back in time in the first place would not have happened. And so the whole scenario would not have happened. The way that Toltec Shaman of my lineage have found to sidestep that uh, paradox is by sidestepping their timeline, actually stepping onto another timeline, then traveling back to the same distance and relaying the message over. That's the simplest way to explain it. It's a matter of altering consciousness, uh, shifting the assemblage point, and using a powerful bolt of intent to reach yourself back in the same time just by a it's like a parallel universe you're real close to the same uh, timeline that you're walking on and I know this is getting a little complicated but it's it's a very difficult subject to explain without a blackboard or a whiteboard and and uh, you know pictures were in demonstrations but that's the simplest way to explain it is that you can do that by altering your consciousness, shifting your assemblage point, and going back down a separate timeline so that you're parallel to the one that you're on, so that you will not um, come into what they sometimes refer to as a grandfather clause, where uh, if you kill your grandfather, you're never born. That actually w would not come into play, any paradox like that, because you're not in the same timeline then you make the alterations or communications uh, in the timeline where you're at, and then you come back in your consciousness. This is all done in an interdimensional space of consciousness. And you come back in your own present time and then switch back into your, uh, your current timeline. And then the results would have taken place, whether they were what you expected or not. Now, how do I know this is uh, something that's possible? Well, there, there's two reasons. First of all, these are stories that have been handed down for at least five centuries in my uh, Toltec shamanic lineage. Uh, there were different examples given to me you know, when I was taught the principles. And the other reason is because I have used them once myself. I've tried to use them several times but I was only successful once. And although there's no way to prove it, someone who should be dead is not dead today because of it. At least not in the timeline that uh, our reality exists in at this moment. Now, I'll admit some of my other experiments were to communicate with myself in the past in only a 24-hour window, and those experiments failed. What I was trying to do is to take the winning lottery numbers for an, a lottery that had already taken place and project it back to myself just 24 hours prior. Now, I have theories why that doesn't work. I've tried that a few times, and the reasons that I believe it doesn't work is because as you approach a major event horizon, like uh, something like a lottery where a lot of people are focused on it, the attention, the awareness of millions of people actually have an influence over the result, over the outcome of the uh, event or lottery in this case. And just because I knew what the winning lotteries were, it doesn't mean that that doesn't change right up to the last second. While I'm in the same timeline, 
it still ended up with different results through uh, the combined effort of uh, various people. You know, wanting their they want their numbers to win. They're focusing. Other people are focusing on their numbers. There's so much awareness and attention focused on that particular event that it changes right up to the last second. There's, there's in other words, there's no predestined path to the results of an event where so many people are following. And that's why I believe that I haven't been able to succeed. And my teacher demonstrated to me different examples of how this works. He actually gave me examples and demonstrations of how it's possible to jump timelines back and forth, one resulting in uh, tragedy, the other one resulting in nothing, you know, no, no injury of any kind. It's a very complicated subject, and it's something you got to sit down and really wrap your mind around. Uh, it takes you know, a couple people hours of discussing it before it actually sinks in. There are scientific principles involved with it, even though we're talking about uh, you know, shamanic awareness. I plan on doing a series of shows at some point in the future just about time, because that's something that uh, I think a lot of people are interested in. And it is something that is possible to manipulate. The illusion of linearity that, that humans see time, you know, you, you're at point A and you get to point B as a series of, you know, steps is only an illusion. Uh, we can't perceive beyond our three-dimensional awareness and state of consciousness that most people are always in. And... Um, that's why we see time as a linear event. In reality, time is, like I said, expanding on the chronosphere, and everything is happening all over at once. There is no time uh, delay. A lot of physicists are beginning to discover this uh, with the uh, CERN project and the Large Hadron Collider. That's opening up a lot of doors that will uh, bring a lot of answers in the near future. I hope that answers your question, Ms. Fostos. I don't know exactly what you had in mind. If it's uh, winning a lottery or something like that, good luck with that. It's not as easy as you might think for the reasons I just explained. If you're trying for other reasons, it can be done. It takes a great deal of practice. You know, I spent eight years training, learning how to do different things like that. It's not always successful. Sometimes um, things are meant to happen for a reason. I've tried to save another life and I failed. And it's not that I don't consider myself failing at it. I consider it that destiny has it um, so that the event that took place, the death that took place, was supposed to take place. And I believe there's not really a force called destiny, but there are arrangements that are made before we're actually born. And sometimes the person that dies is supposed to die at that time. There are reasons. And they, uh, they want it to happen, even though they don't understand it while they're in their physical bodies. So I hope that answers your questions. And um, good luck with uh, what you're doing. And, and stay tuned in, because I will be talking about this topic in, in more detail in future shows. Since the last two emails required rather lengthy answers, I'm going to conclude this week's segment. And I think I'm going to call this segment, Ask a Shaman. 
If you have any questions you'd like to ask me and uh, have me answer on the air, please email me at marcus at shamansbrew.com and I will do my best to get your questions answered on the air in as much detail as possible.